Good morning, Redemption Parker. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Um, we were in California last week. I got to preach at a church we love, and uh, I will say on Sunday I missed RP. So it's good to, good to be back amongst you guys. Um, you can turn to the book of James now if you'd like. We'll be there in a couple minutes. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, One of the great and shameful tragedies of this country is that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Now, many years have passed since Dr. King spoke those words, and much progress has been made, although events like last Saturday remind us all we have a long way to go. And unfortunately, those who attend churches Sunday morning at 11 a.m. is still one of the most segregated hours in this country. I remember someone once telling me in response to MLK's statement about the Sunday hour. He said, yeah, but let me ask you a question. He said, why is there even such thing as the black church? We don't have white church. Maybe if we just did church, MLK's statement wouldn't carry any weight. Now, in in diverse cities across this country, we should hope for and pursue with blood, sweat, and tears diverse churches that match our diverse cities. Christ's blood-bought bride is multi-ethnic. But that's another sermon for another day. But I do want to answer that question. Why is there even such thing as the black church? Because knowing our history is important. And the answer to his question will launch us into the burden of James's message this morning. Well, before we ever get a black denomination, we have what is known as the invisible institution. These were enslaved black Christians who, when they became Christians, had to meet in hush arbors. Secret places in the farm, in the woods, in the swamps, any private place they could find to worship. In any given service, someone would give a word of exhortation from the word of God, encouraging the people of God. And then they would spend their time in prayer and singing. And if you haven't sang or or read some of the Negro spirituals, you're missing out. Especially as we inch closer to a post post Christian world, we, we need the wisdom and experience from the black church tradition. But as more and more black slaves are coming to faith in Christ, white slave owners think it might be easier to control them if we all met in the same church building. So they did for a while. It's interesting to note the great schism between black and white Christians in America had nothing to do with doctrine, like many other church splits. They actually saw eye to eye on important issues like the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, the necessity for faith and repentance in conversion, or the gospel. What divided the church was favoritism. James's theme this morning favoritism. The AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church, is the first black Christian denomination in America. One of its founders was Richard Allen. Allen was born a slave in Philly in in 1760, but his owner allowed him to attend church with him. And when he was 17 years old, became a Christian. 
Well, Alan purchased his freedom about 10 years later, and this dude became quite the preacher. He got invited all over town to preach Christ at various churches. He became became a regular preacher at St. George's in Philadelphia, an interracial Methodist church. Well, until one Sunday in 1792, Richard Allen and fellow black preacher Absalom Jones showed up to attend a church service at St. George's. Without knowing it, they sat in the area reserved for white members. As they hit their knees to prayer, as they hit their knees for prayer in the prayer time, a white trustee of the church interrupted them. Here's how Richard Allen recounts this story in his autobiography. He says, we had not been long upon our knees before I heard considerable scuffling and low talking. I raised my head and saw one of the trustees having hold of the Reverend Absalom Jones, pulling him up off his knees and saying, you must get up. You must not kneel here. Mr. Jones replied, wait until prayer is over. The man said, no, you must get up now or I will call for aid and force you away. Mr. Jones said, wait until prayer is over and I will get up and trouble you no more. As another white trustee came to help pull up the black worshipers, prayer time ended and Alan said this, we all went out of the church in a body and they were no more plagued with us in the church. So to answer my question, there would actually be no black church if there was not favoritism partiality or prejudice fleshed out in this instance through the color of one's skin in the white church. And and, and like we know, much of our world history is the story of favoritism, cycling itself over in different settings with different people from Nazi Germany and Hitler against the Jewish people to Peyton Gendron against the black community in Buffalo, from the Rwandan civil war with the Hutu and Tutsi groups within the Rwandan people to gang life in LA between the Bloods and Crips, where people literally kill other people because they wore the wrong colored hat. We can give countless examples in history of of favoritism gone wrong, but does favoritism and partiality just happen out there on the grand story of history or does it also happen in here in here in our hearts and lives on a daily basis i mean doesn't our culture even teach us to to climb the corporate ladder by knowing the right people that as you look at someone aren't we taught if not explicitly at least implicitly to ask the question what can this person do for me As we choose the people to do life with, our friend groups, our neighbors we have over, the the co-workers we engage with, even our GCs, how often do we usually gravitate towards the ones who are like us, the ones who bring some benefit to us? How often, even in church on Sunday morning, when talking to someone, you overhear another conversation? Maybe with someone you deem more important as the one right in front of you. Can we be honest? At what point are we not even paying attention? From the status symbols of our culture that tell us one has money and power and one doesn't. 
to how one dresses, tattoos, or pierces their body, and of course, the color of one's skin. What about the color of one's political party? Favoritism is not just out there, it is within us every day. And James is going to show us this morning in our passage that the family of faith only function as kingdom citizens where favoritism is nowhere to be found. So if you're not already there, James chapter 2. James chapter 2 will begin in verse 1 and work our way through verse 13 this morning. James 2 verse 1, this is the word of God, church. My brothers or brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James begins our passage with a warning, show no partiality. Or in the New English translation, do not show prejudice. Or the translation I find in this warning to be most helpful to our modern ears, the NIV and CSB says, do not show favoritism. Now, in our passage this morning, we will have three different movements. That's where we're headed. So if you're a note taker, the warning, then we'll talk about the warrant and finally the way. So James begins with the warning here in verse one, show no favoritism. James's thesis to this entire passage is quite simple. Favoritism is anti-gospel. In addressing the family of faith, he says, those holding to the faith. James is saying, favoritism and the faith family do not belong under the same roof. And what roof are they under? Our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, the Lord of glory. Anglican theologian Sam Albury says, James' point is a simple one. Favoritism is profoundly unchristian. It says, in effect, that someone who is worth more to the world is worth more to the church. And correspondingly, that someone who is worth less to the world is worth less to the church. Favoritism ends up judging one person's soul as being of greater value than another's. And it does all this on the basis of superficial worldly criteria. James is saying that if you're a part of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glories, faith family, leave your favoritism at the cross where Jesus died for it. Next, James gives an example to follow up his warning that this example is not simply hypothetical. James hears about things that are happening in these churches outside of Jerusalem. He sees things in his own church in Jerusalem, and he's anticipating our struggles in 2022. Look at verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Rank in money. That's where James goes here. He he paints a picture where where the church is is honoring the one whom their culture honors. with, With power, possessions, influence. All the while doing the complete opposite to the one the culture despises. The poor 
the oppressed, those with no cultural influence. Before we move on to James Warren, to his rationale, look what he says to those who engage in favoritism. He calls it evil. No doubt he has Leviticus 15, 19 on, on his mind as he is writing this. That verse says, do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. James is warning these Christians and us that favoritism and faith do not go hand in hand. Christians, be who you are and so you must not show favoritism. An illustration that would paint this picture well for us. As as you know, you can find a a gold ring for 25 cents at Goodwill and no one's going to show you special treatment. And shabby clothing is kind of the thing right now. So for us, it might be something more like this. The new quarterback of the Broncos, who who Pastor Mark is pretty optimistic about. I don't know. Still got to play the Chiefs. (laughs) But I've heard he's a Christian. So let's say he's settling into his new $25 million home in Colorado. And as he's looking up some churches in the area, he finds himself on the Acts 29 website. He stumbles into RP. Imagine church if we totally blew it. Like we went fanboy, we're taking selfies, asking for his autograph. We hand him an RP mug without even having him pay for it. Like the rest of us, nobodies. We let him sit in the front row, which I guess is not really special treatment here. (laughs) None of y'all want to sit in the front row. (laughs) But we just pampered him because, come on, this is Russell Wilson, the quarterback of the Broncos. Imagine if we could get him to be a member at RP. Talk about impacting Parker for the gospel, right? All the while, a homeless dude walks in. Our Connect team asks him if he's lost. Tells him to go to the farmer's market and maybe grab some deodorant. There's a church actually closer to there, so you might just want to go that way. Or imagine he does come in, but, but nobody says a word to him. Imagine we invited a friend that day, and now we're embarrassed. Definitely nobody invites them to their GC or, or lunch after church. After the service ends, you say, hey, honey, you grab the kids and run. I'll meet you at the car. Now, hopefully, we wouldn't act like this, but I don't know. You ever been on the the town of Parker's Facebook page when someone spots a homeless man? Read through that thread. Yikes. Pretty sure our own dark-skinned homeless Messiah rabbi would would, would probably get the boot from the town of Parker. Well, this is James' example of partiality or favoritism as he warns the church to never let this behavior and attitude find itself into the household of faith. For us, sadly, favoritism is a respectable sin. It's not even really frowned upon. But James says it's straight up evil and is not befitting for the people of God. After James gives his warning, now he gives his warrant. Time to give some rationale, some reasons behind his warning not to show favoritism. Our daughter Eden is in the why phase herself. Everything we say, she's got to ask why. Why do I have to go to bed now? Why do I need to hold your hand when we cross the street? Why do we blink? 
Thankfully, Holly was in the car for that one. I was like, good question. <laughs> the hardest ones to me seems all, 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 the, all the whys she's asking as we're working through some of these children's storybook Bibles. The easy answer for all her whys is because I said so, or that's just what God did. In our passage, James anticipates a why. Why is favoritism bad? Isn't it just common sense? James, we live in a dog-eat-dog world. Can we even survive without favoritism? But James doesn't say, because I said so, and I'm Jesus' little brother. No, he gives them reasons. Like, Like every parent knows, warnings are not killjoys. Though our kids think they are, gotta eat your vegetables before dessert. Make sure you play with your sister or we're going to take the toy away or get out of the street now. Warnings are actually essential if one is going to experience full human potential, the good life. Could you imagine how our kids would end up if we parented them on their terms? And so this warning, likewise, show no favoritism is for our flourishing. And you want to know why, James says, let me explain. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James sounds kind of like Paul here. He's like, look around, guys. God is not really calling a bunch of superstars. It seems like God chooses the foolish things in the eyes of this world to be heirs of his kingdom. I mean, look around RP. He chose us. And if you're offended right now, I'd say go back and listen to some of the Roman series, especially chapters one through three. Don't be overly impressed with yourself. That's like the beginning of understanding the gospel. Ray Ortland says, Jesus is not a life coach for winners. Jesus is not a life coach for winners who want to improve their game. He is the rescuer of losers who are squandering their chance at life. And this is the church. Or maybe you're thinking, um, I'm not sure I love James's rationale. Isn't God just doing some reverse favoritism? He's actually partial himself just to the poor. Not exactly. Though God does have a heart for the oppressed and hurting. We saw that last week when Ryan preached on God's heart for the orphan and the widow. True religion is caring for the least among us. Craig Blomberg says, God is on the side of the poor, not because they are poor, but because they are responsive to him and are near the kingdom. I mean, this is basically what Jesus teaches, right? How nearly impossible it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. As many are trusting their own resources. They think they don't need God. Not the poor. When they hear the gospel, you don't need to convince them they are sinners. And they are more likely to respond in faith and be rich toward God, lovers of God. James is like, look to your own experience. Who are the ones dragging you into court? Not the poor, 
but rather the rich. And you're showing them favoritism because you think God can't advance his kingdom without them? It's funny how we think like this. When I was a young Christian, I used to pray fervently for my favorite rapper, Eminem. Because in my mind, if God can save Eminem, then we're going to see a revival in this country. (laughs) But in reality, it doesn't work like that. Did Kanye West's conversion mean salvation for the world? I guess time will tell. If you grew up in a public school like mine, you'd probably remember team captains when playing sports. Man, the guys who were picked last, I bet they're still healing from some of those wounds. And I'm I'm sorry if I brought up a a sore spot. The, The worst was when it was down to just one guy. The teams were already even in numbers. They would try to give you to the other team. Like, please take him. Okay, fine. Rock, paper, scissors. God's kingdom doesn't work like that. His team is filled with last round picks. And in this way, the kingdom of God advances. And the captain, the Lord of glory, gets all the glory. Even as we look around at the global church today, it's overwhelmingly poor. This pattern seems to continue on. The places the gospel is spreading like wildfire are poor places. Latin America, parts of Southeast Asia, Iraq. One commentator says, this is not to say that God loves the rich less than he loves the poor or that the poor somehow deserve the sacrificial death of Jesus more than the rich, but it is to say that God's choosing to bless the very people James's readers then and now tend to shun. But then James continues his rationale. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Imagine some dude about to get locked up for murder. All the evidence is on the table. I mean, he has nothing going for him. The whole thing was shot under surveillance camera, and there's four eyewitnesses with matching testimonies. The gun has his fingerprints all over it, but before he's sentenced to life in prison, he's able to make one more plea to the jury. Imagine if he says... Yeah, you're right. Guilty as charged for murder. But I have never, never cheated on my wife. Not even once. Um, that's irrelevant, sir. Guilty as charged. Life in prison. But hey, on a bright note, I'm sure your wife will come visit you. That's what James is doing here. He brings up Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and basically says, if you're showing favoritism, you're guilty as charged. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. And why this command? Notice he calls it the royal law. In verse one, James calls Jesus the Christ, aka king. Verse five shows us those who are in his kingdom. 
And here in verse 8 gives the royal command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And James isn't just picking some random verse thinking this one might be the most important. King Jesus himself was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? You remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with everything you got. Quoting the Shema in Deuteronomy. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Leviticus. And then he says, there is no greater commandment, singular, than these, plural. Basically, how do you show love for your God? You love your neighbor. This is King Jesus' royal law, and it cannot be obeyed while showing any kinds of favoritism. So we've heard the warning, the the, the warrant, and now we'll end our passage this morning with the way. What is the way forward? Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Speak and act. It's another way of saying right living. This is the good life that the book of James is all about. The way forward is the warning that James spoke of in verse 1, restated here as a positive exhortation. Speak and act. The reason judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy is because if someone does not show mercy, they themselves have not experienced mercy. Speak and act like those under the law of liberty. There's that phrase again from last week, the law of liberty. Unlike the law of Moses that only showed us how short we match up to God's standard, the law of liberty is the gospel of grace that lavishes mercy and forgiveness on those who do not deserve it. James is saying, live like you understand the gospel. Let your words and actions have a gospel aroma. You're not saved by how well you love your neighbors. You're not saved based on how well you do not show favoritism. You are saved by the sheer mercy and grace of God, the blood poured out by Jesus himself for our sins. But that person saved by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone is forever changed. They show mercy because they themselves have received mercy. If you show no mercy, it's because you've never truly received the saving mercy of God. Friends, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, left glory, stooped so low to become a man, to take your place as a criminal on the cross, to pay the debt for your sin that you could never pay for yourself. And through faith in Christ, you have received the greatest gift imaginable, eternal life now and forever. Praise God that mercy triumphs over judgment. 
So as God's forgiven people, would we leave from here with our king's royal law on our hearts and on our minds? Love your neighbor as yourself and do not show favoritism. James is telling us the true family of faith only function as kingdom citizens where favoritism is nowhere to be found. That's our main application. You've been given mercy. Now you go and be merciful. But I do have a final application. This one is extremely practical. I read Andy Crouch's new book this week, The Life We're Looking For. Highly recommend it. And in it, he tells a story about killing time in in the O'Hare airport in Chicago. He had several hours, wanted to get in some exercise, but also needed something for his soul as he felt weary. So he walked from concourse to concourse. He didn't just rack up miles and miles. He tried an exercise where he looked at every single person who crossed his path, and he said to himself, image bearer, image bearer, she's an image bearer. He's an image bearer. Image bearer. He came to the conclusion that when dealing with others, we either exploit or we contemplate. Two options. He he says, when we exploit, we ask, what can this person do for me? This is the root of favoritism. But when we contemplate, he says, we ask, who or what am I beholding? without regard for their usefulness to me. Let me say that again. When we contemplate, we ask, who or what am I beholding without regard for their usefulness to me? Church, let's not just see people and ask ourselves how they may benefit my life, advance my kingdom. Let us see persons And behold them as those made in God's image. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. If we keep this in mind along with our king's command to, to, to not show favoritism and love our neighbors as ourselves, we would see one another and the world around us with new eyes, kingdom eyes. Could you imagine being part of a faith family like that? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your grace in the gospel. We thank you that we are under your law of liberty, that Christ has set us free. Lord, help us now as we have received your mercy. Help us to extend mercy. Help us to not be partial in how we interact with people. Help us to not show favoritism in our hearts even, God. Help us to truly love one another as you love us. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this all in Christ's name.